This is episode number 187 with Jacqueline Novogratz of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan, and I am the CEO of Founder Magazine and also the host of the Founder Podcast. And I hope you're all having a great day wherever you are around the world. Uh, I'm coming to you live from hometown, Melbourne, Australia. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. I know. Your attention is scarce, and I just want to say thank you. I really, really want to just rock your world with this episode. It is an absolute game changer. Uh, Jacqueline Novogratz is the founder of a company called Acumen, and uh, she's created a nonprofit venture fund that's actually impacted you know more than two hundred thirty million lives, and she's invested over one hundred ten million through her company Acumen Fund in uh, I, I guess really just uh, social enterprise ventures. Uh, so incredible story. What Jacqueline shares with you is really really heartwarming. Uh, it makes me really want to see what we can do with Founder and use our business as a force for good. I know you're going to get so much gold from this. Jacqueline is a really a, a true testament to the kind of founder that we all really want to aspire to be. And you know what I mean when you listen to this interview. So anyways, guys, that's it from me. I'm not going to ramble too much. But if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. Please do make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well and share it with your friends. Wherever you are, I know you must have other friends that are founders, entrepreneurs. And if you think this could provide any value to them at all, please do share it with them. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. So the first question uh, that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? This job or my first job or? Yeah, the job that you're doing today, I guess. Like, how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? So um, I had worked on Wall Street as a young person and saw that 
that markets too often exploited or left the poor out, so they created great efficiencies. And I've worked in um, international development, specifically in Rwanda, where I had seen that top-down approaches to aid and charity too often created dependence. And over a 15, 20-year period, it also recognized that if we were talking about poverty, we made a mistake by thinking of it in terms of income alone and needed instead to think about it in terms of human dignity, whether a person had choice or opportunity. And so it was really a question of putting all that together, seeing the rise of social entrepreneurs, the technology that was connecting us, new philanthropy coming online. And I thought, well, what if we change the game? And rather than seeing philanthropy or the markets as the end in and of itself, what if we saw them as means? What if we started with a customer who was poor, built solutions from her perspective, and and then figured out the kind of capital, invested in them for long-term, uh, what we call patient capital. And um, maybe, just maybe, we could disrupt uh, the status quo and build systems that allowed the poor to have that choice and that dignity that I was searching for. And, um, and so in 2001, I started acting. I see. And when you talk about, uh, people always talk about, uh, you know, when people look at poverty, they look at look at lack of money, and you're 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 taking a different approach about lack of opportunity and choice. What kind of work or what what kind of opportunities and choice does Acumen give people in poverty? So Acumen refuses to see the poor as pathetic individuals raised, waiting for a handout or for someone to save them, and instead recognizing that all of us want access to the freedoms that it takes to lead a, a, a life of flourishing. Uh, so we focus on electricity, energy. It's been 133 years since Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, but on the continent of Africa, 700 million Africans have no access to electricity. And that is unjust. It is, is, it's dangerous. It's ineffective. It's not good for any of us. And so how do we bring people energy that's clean, that they can afford, that allows them productivity? Education would be another area where we deny people of education. We deny them of the opportunity or the dignity to solve their problems. Healthcare. You can put yourself into poverty forever. So even if you have a job and your child gets sick and you don't have insurance, um, you can maintain that, 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 that cycle of poverty. So how do we build health systems? that low-income people can afford, and um, agriculture. How do farmers actually get to capture more of the value that they're creating so that they can see a connection between the effort that they put into their work and an outcome that they should be able to reasonably expect? Okay, I see. So when it comes to you know choosing a project or trying to work out uh, – where, like, where, what area or developing country where, where there's lack of opportunity or choice? How do you decide? Well, so we only work only. <laughs> we only work in India, Pakistan, East and West Africa, Latin America, and over the last few years, the United States. So we're already geographically determined. And then we find entrepreneurs that are working in one of these sectors, education, healthcare, energy, or agriculture. 
And we look for three things, Nathan. One is, do we believe in the character of this entrepreneur? Do we believe that she not only has vision, but that she can build a team around her who can make up for her own gaps? That she can have the, the dedication, the perseverance, the grit to do what it takes to fight corruption, bureaucracy, complacency, the status quo. Uh, is this someone we want to work with for 10 years? Second, do we believe that the idea that she has can scale to reach at least a million people? And third, do we see a path to profitability? And if we can answer those three questions and we believe in the idea, um, then we might invest. We look at about 100 companies for every company in which we make an investment. See, and the idea, like it has to be, has to have some element of social good, right? It, but it can be a for profit. They're all for profits, and it's not just an element of social good. It has to be a company that's trying to solve a problem of poverty. So, a for instance would be, I already raised this issue of electricity. In two thousand and seven, you had about a billion, more than a billion people with no access to electricity. Two guys approached us literally with a solar lantern and a dream to eradicate kerosene, which is the fuel that people use for those hurricane lanterns to bring really bad light in really polluting way at really high cost. And so they thought, well, if I, if I give them a lantern, they'll throw away their kerosene and all will be good. But life doesn't work that way. Certainly not when there's no income, no trust no infrastructure, but there's a lot of corruption and there's a kerosene mafia that doesn't want solar to succeed. So we invested in those guys um, and continue to invest in them, for-profit company, for 10 years. But today, or and today, D-Light has brought light and electricity to 77 million people at prices they can afford and value. And through that period, we also learned about the off-grid energy sector and were able to invest in 20 other companies, about $20 million, and build an ecosystem and learn so much that now we have a for-profit initiative where we're looking to prove to government in Africa by really scaling these companies that Africa has a chance to leapfrog the grid just like it leapfrogged landlines with phones and um, and create a better way. But it wouldn't have happened had we not invested the early stage patient capital in those entrepreneurs who dared to make the impossible possible. Yeah, that's amazing. And when it comes to like uh, businesses that you guys have funded or people that you've invested in, how many since 2001? Since 2001, we've invested a little over a hundred million, like a hundred and ten million dollars, and in, into about one hundred and four companies. Our investments have leveraged another half a billion dollars into the companies, served about two hundred thirty million people. In some cases, fully disrupted, you know, created new markets altogether, and um, and we also have an online course um, so that we can share lessons learned that has been taken, a set of courses that have been taken by about 350,000 people, and then in, in, an, in an effort as well to build new entrepreneurs, new problem solvers, we've supported about 400 fellows around the globe. Yeah, wow. And 
I'm curious as well, these these companies that you guys invest in, do you take equity or, or how, how does that side of things work? We primarily take um, invest equity and buy shares in the companies. Um, in some cases, given the nature of the, con- the, the um, company and the market, we will take debt. Oh, so you take debt as well? Yeah. Okay, interesting. And what has been your most successful uh, company that you've invested in so far? The Certainly D-Lite um, with the 77 million people with access to light and electricity. We invested in a, a, an ambulance company called Zakitza when they had all of nine ambulances. And today that company has about 3,500 ambulances, 8,000 employees and has brought um, over 6 million people to hospital. It's one of the largest ambulance companies in the world now, but 75% of the people inside the ambulances make under the poverty line. We invested in a chicken company in Ethiopia. Um, I love this company. It is now started by two young guys, barely out of college, 24 years old. They've been doing it for eight years, but today that company sells a million day old chicks every month or maybe a million and a half day old chicks every month to smallholder to agents 2000 agents who then turn around and sell the who raise the chickens little baby chicks until they're egg laying chickens and they sell those in batches of three to five to 1.5 million farmers every month and our calculation is that they are pumping about, well, over $200 million a year into poor farmers, most of whom make under $3 a day. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. It's amazing. And I could go on. I love my job. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm I'm curious, like, out of all of these these 300 companies, do you still keep in touch? How do you manage? Like, like uh, how do you do all that? Well, Nathan, we marry these companies. I know that many of the the the, the followers of founder are young entrepreneurs, and um, I think one of the things they are, the world doesn't tell you is how long it takes to build companies that are trying to solve tough problems. And so, our expectation when we go in, which is why we insist on investing in character, is that we will be with these companies for ten years or more. So we get to know them extremely well. And the best of them um, are good at building trust and helping us understand when things don't work um, as well as when things do work. And you keep in touch via Skype mainly or or you got like on visit in because you guys are based in, in New York, right? Well, we have offices on the ground in Karachi, Mumbai, London. Nairobi, Accra, Bogota, and San Francisco. And each office is surrounded. It's all locally based and locally hired individuals. They are surrounded by advisors in the business community. And so there's a a deeply embedded community to support the work we do all around the world. And increasingly, I am of the mindset that solving our biggest problems requires more emphasis on building communities of action in which we are bound to one another based on shared values and not by race or ethnicity or tribe. 
And we're seeing that play out in a really exciting way through the work that this community has done. Um, and it's reinforced for me as well in this moment of history in which people feel so divided. Um, what incredible opportunity we have through building these bonds and friendships, um, not by simply holding hands and pretending that we like each other or know each other, but by spending time together solving tough problems, problems that will keep us working for a long, long time. We need to do more of that as a world. Hmm. So what does your day look like? Do you visit these offices? Are you traveling around visiting offices quite often? or? Yeah, I spend about 70% of my time outside of New York. There's no day. Uh, the exciting thing is wherever I am in the world, I, set, I, I have a deep feeling of being home. Um, because of our teams on the ground and the communities around those teams. Often I get up very, very early. I typically read and do email, go on a run, get to the office, work with the team, and then hope some of the best days then are around you know, site visits, even if it takes six hours to go and meet with a farmer's collective or a distributor of solar, spend time understanding uh, maybe next morning get back, and then also uh, tell the stories, tell the narratives of what's possible of and by the poor so that we can see each other more clearly and look for more inclusive approaches to capitalism such that we can do a better job at solving our, our problems. I'm curious, how, how far away do you think we are from that? Like. Inclusive capitalism, I think um, we're both near and far. We're, we're closer in terms of the next generation. I think the millennial generation does not see the world in as bifurcated, as separate a way as their um, elders do. My generation too often sees the world as divided between the place where we make our money and the place where we give it away. The millennial generation, I believe, insists on sustainability, insists on a greater sense of fairness, and the transparency that technology provides us is enabling us to actually see how much people earn along the supply chain, the conditions of workers, and I believe that will drive enormous change. We have a lack of leadership around us right now, both politically and in too many of our companies. And that will be a challenge, but I think that future, that our future and the inevitability of a more just one is what gives me the most hope. That, that because of this next generation, because of our recognition that the world is becoming less environmentally sustainable, that our inequality is unsustainable, that there is a growing population that recognizes that the old way of doing business is no longer an option, that we need new approaches, and those approaches need to bring with them a seriousness about how we solve problems. And I think that this is only going to accelerate, and that makes me really optimistic. Hmm. And why are you so passionate about this problem, you know, you've been doing this kind of work for a while. Um, I'm curious, what drives you? 
you know, I'm, I'm a part of the world and I feel that um, it's such a privilege to be living in this moment of history where we've got everything that we need to create a world in which everyone has more of a chance to solve their own problems, live their own lives, flourish. And uh, I think there's no better way of living than applying yourself to solving those big problems, problems that may not be solved in your lifetime, but give a sense of purpose and meaning and uh, do a whole lot of good along the way. I think as the older I get as well, the more I, I want to be part of helping a generation redefine success so that we look not at the amount of money we have in the bank or even how much we give away, nor our status, nor fame, but on the amount of human energy, human flourishing that we release in the world and the amount of environmental sustainability that we enable. You, you make a very interesting point around uh, status and, and it's not about how much money we make or it's how much is in the bank. Um, and you talk about millennials. One thing that I find interesting and I guess, you know, our work at Founder is kind of contributing to it, but I, I hope not in a in a negative light. But one thing I've definitely noticed uh, in my generation, uh, in the millennial generation, is is being on, an entrepreneur is now the new cool. And yes. I think more than ever, uh, people are certainly sold on the lifestyle. They look at the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses of the world and uh, maybe not Elon Musk, but it definitely it definitely looks like it's it's really cool. It's definitely highlighted. You know, if you're if you're a very very famous founder, uh, you you're, you're you essentially become a celebrity now. Um, and I think that definitely attracts some people. And it definitely, I think, um, you know, around business, I I definitely know that there is definitely a rising trend of people not wanting to work for somebody else, uh, which is something is only going to grow larger, I think. But what I where, where I'm going with this is, uh, do you think that more and more people like like what is it about certain people that want to start a social enterprise versus uh, a, like a not non-social enterprise? Now these businesses are all for profit that you back, but then you know a lot are. But they're all social enterprises. They all are. Yeah, because they're all trying to solve a problem, even though they're for profit. Yes, however, there that maybe maybe I uh, maybe the but you the entrepreneur may not be caring about that problem or like, you know what I mean? Like there, there are a lot of people right now that would be starting businesses that are purely starting it not to solve the problem, not to provide value, just to make okay. money. Right. Yeah. I think that's but a growing we, trend as well. That's right. Because we have enough apps that are telling us where the best latte is or how to, you know, create the, the next thousand dollar juicer. There's a new generation that is saying, I want to be used to solve these tough problems and I see business as the most effective tool to do it. So they're becoming entrepreneurs. And what's so cool, Nathan, is that they are breaking all the rules. So we've invested in an entrepreneur called um, Emily Stone who started a company called Uncommon Cacao. And she and other entrepreneurs like her in Latin America are ignoring global commodities prices altogether when they negotiate with the smallholder farmers who are producing coffee and chocolate 
In her case, five million smallholder farmers grow all the cocoa, or 95% of the cocoa, um, that holds up a $100 billion business. So when we buy $12, $15 chocolate bars, the producers might be getting paid for, you know, five cents of it, 10 cents of it. And so she's, this, this crop of entrepreneurs is saying, we can do better than that. And they are negotiating with the farmers, giving them really solid prices, providing them with great transparency of the value chain, as are they providing transparency to the customers. And through that, I see different kinds of capitalism emerging. These are entrepreneurs that are running for-profit companies and recognize and believe that that's the best way to solve these problems, but they are driven to solve tough problems with profit after purpose. They're not starting with profit and trying to do good things too. That's the difference. Yes. So if somebody was listening to this right now and they wanted to start a business that that is that is purpose before profit what would you say to them what would you rec how would you recommend to get started because i do i this is something we do get requests a lot like people do say you know we'd love for you to interview more social enterprise founders uh people doing you know work for the greater good um not so much yeah for profit but yeah i'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts so i would say too many people get hung up on trying to understand what their purpose is before they do anything. Mm. And instead, mm. I would encourage young entrepreneurs to look around at the problems in the world and then match those problems to some of their own yearnings, their own desires. Um, if you look at Dave Ellis, who's the guy who started the chicken farm, Ethio Chicken, 24 years old in Ethiopia, not really sure what he would do, but he got this opportunity to get the contract for this big government chicken farm where there wasn't a single live chicken. Uh, Dave himself had never seen a chicken, having grown up in Chicago, but saw a real chance to build a company, contribute to a region, and to think about the millions of farmers now who are improving their incomes having a new form of business. There are a thousand employees and, uh, and that single company is largely attributed for reducing malnutrition rates in the Tigray, Ethiopia. He, over time, his purpose became him and he became his purpose. But he didn't start by trying to figure out what his purpose was. Um, I think if he started there, he may not have really done anything. So I would say, number one, start with the problems outside of yourself and then go figure out ways to solve it. Two, dream big. You know, Dave wanted to build the biggest chicken farm in the world. Sam Goldman of Delight wanted to eradicate kerosene. Um, huge problems, but start small. Don't be feeling that you've got to take on the world overnight. And then three, you know, be get really good at listening, listening to your customers, listening to the environment, and building building solutions from the perspective of the people that you are there to serve, not making the mistake of thinking you have the answers uh, to what other people need. Mm. yeah, I really I really like the first one around 
or, or the overarching like like don't don't worry about what you're going to do just focus on on just doing something and then kind of falling into it I, I think I think so often people want to find the right idea or, or want it to be perfect and they're worried about failing and all these other things but sometimes you just got to jump into it yes or you meet young people who want to keep all their options open without realizing that you do that long enough and at the end of the day all you have is a lot of options. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean there too. Um, look, we have to work towards wrapping up, but um a couple of last questions. Uh besides you know, you said that you basically marry these companies for ten years. Uh, and, you know, obviously you provide capital, but you provide a, a, a tremendous amount of support. Uh, when it comes to growing these companies and, and supporting them, what kind of things are you seeing that are common amongst uh, early stage, uh, you know, just these are early stage startups too, um, that that are that are purpose before profit? What are the what are the challenges, common challenges that you're seeing that you guys are, are helping these startups do? Great question. Um, I would say number one issue, um, particularly in some of the markets we serve, is talent. Find kind of talent as you're growing, particularly since you don't have a lot of money to pay them, um, and then continuing to grow that talent. Number two is probably marketing that, in, that includes fundraising. These are typically cash-starved companies um, that don't necessarily have a lot of connections. Um, they also often don't have a lot of experience in marketing to their customers. Number three would be developing supply chains. How are they going to distribute and find those customers, particularly as they start to grow? And then four would be, which is connected to the fundraising, is overall financing, because banks often don't believe in the customers they're serving. And so finding mechanisms to enable them not only to get uh, equity rounds, but to access debt more effectively would be another big challenge that the, that the newbies have. I see. And like uh, when it comes to, you know, further financing, cash flow, capital, um, do you guys ever recommend like like uh, any any form of, of equity crowdfunding or crowdfunding at all? Some of our companies crowdfund. I mean, there are so many different innovations um, and, uh, and the most creative companies are using a mix. Increasingly, we're even seeing companies like Sanergy, which is as it's a toilet company, they use Kiva to get loans, microloans to individual entrepreneurs who buy toilets in the slums. The the waste is picked up every day by employees and the and it's converted into fertilizer and then sold on the, um, to, to farmers. It has a public orientation as well as a private sector. So it's a for-profit company and it has a non-profit company. It, it therefore is raising both equity grants and debt and the the, the entrepreneurs are, are borrowing microloans through Kiva. So I think increasingly, and it's one of the great sources of, of, of excitement for this next generation and the possibilities we have to solve our problems, um, we're seeing a whole new uh, array of financial instruments that people can access to build new kinds of companies that um, I hope will be will be measured based on 
the good that they're doing for the world. Mm, love it. Okay, well, look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, last question, Jacqueline, before we uh, move on and, and I let you go. Uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and Acumen? Thanks for asking that, Nathan. We have a website, um, www.acumen.org. And um, I actually have a book called The Blue Sweater that's on Amazon. Um, that tells a lot about the stories of you know, me as a 25-year-old trying to build social enterprises um, and how that led to uh, the creation of Acumen. Lots of stories of failures uh, and the importance of getting up and trying again. And yeah, they, people can follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And uh, I'm sure other places that my team just doesn't tell me about. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Jacqueline. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. And I wish you the best of luck. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.